Hello and welcome to the Biocom's podcast. Uh, I'm Sam, the Research Associate at Biocom, and this week's episode is a recording of my discussions with the Jerusalem Post Editor-in-Chief Yakov Katz and Walla News' political correspondent Tal Shalev on the upcoming elections in Israel. one hand we're in it's like garbage time because it seems like everything that's happening now is all about campaigning and promises that won't be kept and they don't really have a real effect on the results but then I also said that this is not a classical garbage time because this week and these final days are very much essential for the small parties so it's clear by now that the election or Netanyahu's victory or the other side's victory will be defined by the fate of um, four or five, probably four, small parties that at the moment, all of them pass the threshold and all of them by the polls get about four seats. Uh, but that is a very, um, not necessarily cred- statistically credible when we reach the polls. Um, and each one of these small parties, if they pass the threshold or don't, or don't pass the threshold, can really change the balance between the two uh, blocks that we have, the Netanyahu's block and the block that wants to replace Netanyahu. Most of these small parties are on the anti-Netanyahu side. Um, so they are in greater danger. And if one of these parties, and we're talking about Meretz, Blue and White, and to some extent Labor, if one of these parties does not eventually pass a threshold, then Netanyahu's path to the 61 mandates that he needs to form a government is supposed to be much easier. Um, so that's one thing I wrote about. The other thing is that both Netanyahu and Yair Lapid, who at the moment is like the chief front runner uh, of the anti-Bibi bloc, both of them are trying to use this last week to you know, expand and uh, become stronger. And both of them are playing, trying to play a very dangerous game. They're trying, you know, to to become stronger on expense on, at the expense of the small parties. But they're trying to like pinpoint which party exactly, which which kind of supporters are they trying to bring over. So Netanyahu is trying to eat Naftali Bennett and to weaken Naftali Bennett and Gidon Sal, but he doesn't want to ch- um, he doesn't want to touch at all. The very uh, the much more uh, radical uh, religious party led by Bezalel Smotrich, which is called the National Zionism. Um, excuse me, the religious Zionism. And Yair Lapid, from his part, says that he doesn't want to hurt Meretz at all, but he's opening open up to open up to try to bring votes from both Yeshatid and for, uh, both um, Labor and Blue and White. And you know they're trying to use chopsticks to choose their campaigning. And it's not clear that you can be so precise. Just one last comment is that we have about 12 to 13% still by now of people who are undecided, which means that this campaign, this last week of campaigning could be um, essential. Tomorrow evening, we're going to have the last polls. And between then and election day, we won't have any way to measure if there have been any changes and where we are going. Yakov, is that how you see it as well? Well, I, no, I think Tal is 100% right that we're facing a, uh, it's, it's complex and especially at this part of the uh, election campaign where the bigger parties are trying to grow even bigger and the smaller parties are trying to hold on to whatever gains that they've made until now. Uh, the numbers that we see in the final polls, which would become like, we, we for example have a poll that comes out later tonight the TV stations will have the polls that come out on Friday night. That, that's the end of polling. And then you'll have Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, where you really won't know whether there's going to be a big shift. And if we look back, and I think really the uh, the change for a lot of this was the 2015 election, when in, the, in, the, in those Friday polls, Netanyahu was then going up against what was known as the Zionist Union, which was this merger of labor together with uh, Tzipi Livni's Hatnua party. And... Um, you had Isaac Herzog and Livni who were leading this party. Polls showed that they were going to win, right? That they were going to be able to form the next coalition. And that's kind of how we went into Friday's, uh, into the final weekend ahead of the vote on Tuesday. And in those three days, Netanyahu did, uh, worked his magic, which oftentimes works, and, uh, and was able to pull back a lot of votes and was able to decimate Naftali Bennett, was able to do other things, but was able to grow to be a much larger party. So... It's very 
premature, I think, still to predict. And as Tal said, you know, the, the, the Lapid and BB are really going to be trying to grow as much as they can. The smaller parties to hold on to what they have. Uh, but I would anticipate that whatever polling numbers we see now, they're, they're going to change. Netanyahu will go up. Uh, Saar, Gidon Saar, Naftali Bennett will likely lose a little. The question will really be about Benny Gantz, whether uh, Lapid is able to eat away at him and really finish him off. And that has big consequences, I think. I mean, first of all, it's just an incredible idea of the fact that this guy who was once 35 seats will now be wiped out completely in such a short amount of time. Uh, but the second part of it is that if he was able to stay on as a Knesset member legally and then there weren't to be another, uh, a new government were not to be formed, there was this hypothetical scenario that come November 2021, the, uh, the rotation would actually take place and he would take office. But for that to happen, he'd have to be, by law, a member of Knesset. So it'll be interesting to see what happens to him. Um, but uh, that's the, the, the beauty of Israeli elections, right? How uh, we really don't know what to, what to expect. Absolutely, absolutely. <clears throat> one, that, one that obviously you mentioned there, um, Benny Gantz, um, obviously what's going through his mind at the moment, trying to stay in the game. Um, on the other end, on the right wing, you've got <clears throat> Naftali Bennett, who's been kind of described again as one of the kingmakers. And Yakov, if I'm not mistaken, you actually took time out of journalism to um, be a senior advisor to Bennett when he was in the education ministry. Um, as you know him fairly well, um, what way do you think Bennett will go? Do you think he, he will pick kind of the ideological purity with the right wing? Or do you think he'll be brave enough to actually go ahead and become this kind of new generational leader? I think it's a good, great question, and it's a complicated one for Naftali Bennett. On the one hand, he, I think, wants Netanyahu offstage, right? He wants to, he himself wants to become the new leader of the right. Um, but he doesn't want to make someone else the leader of the right. He doesn't want to make someone else the successor to, to Benjamin Netanyahu. He wants it to be himself. So if he is presented with the dilemma of, on the one hand, if he is in that kingmaker position, that he could take all his seats and move them over to Bibi, and Bibi would have that 61 coalition, or alternatively, take his seats and move them over to a coalition that would consist of Lapid, Lieberman, um, Labour, Bennett, maybe with Gantz, without Gantz, with Merits, without Merits. I mean, the, each, each one of those components has a whole separate story in itself. But let's say there are those two options on the table. Uh, if he's not going to be prime minister in the second option, in the anti-Bibi camp, so he would just be another member of that coalition, and Lapid or Saar would be the prime minister, my guess would be that he would actually go in with Netanyahu because he wouldn't want to crown um, or give the throne to someone else. If it's not him, it's not going to be me, it's not going to be someone else. So might as well go with Bibi. Um, and, and if he goes with Netanyahu, let's also put things into perspective. He'll get whatever he wants, right? I mean, if, if he wanted, for example, to be defense minister, foreign minister, finance minister, and justice minister all in one just for him, <laughs> Bibi would give it to him, right? Because he'll be so dependent on that. Now, it'll get complicated, though, Sam, if Bibi doesn't have 61, mm. but the other side does have 61. Then what does Bennett do? So there's no coalition with Netanyahu, and there is one with Lapid, uh, Saar, Lieberman, and those other guys. Then what does Bennett do? Does he say, no, I'm not going to go in because I, I don't want these guys to be prime minister, or I'm going to demand a rotation, they're not going to want to give him one. And then the uh, other alternatives that go to fifth election, and then he'll be blamed for the fifth election. So that's where I think it'll become complicated for him. In his dream scenario, right, and, and with this I'll finish, his dream scenario is that he gets... 10, 12, 13, ideally 15, but that looks very unrealistic, number of seats. BB has 61. He goes to the other side and says, listen, I, I won't go with BB, but you want to bring down BB? I'm the prime minister. And then he will be able to get all of them to fall under him, no rotation, nothing. That's his dream. To be able to make that happen, though, you can't do that with eight seats, right? You can't do that with seven seats. I don't even know if you could do it with 10. You need a, a number, and, and at the moment, he's nowhere near that number. So I don't see that third scenario necessarily playing out. Fascinating. How much, I mean, Tal, maybe, how much do you think long-term thinking is going through Bennett's mind? Obviously, in the long term, he probably wants to lead Likud. He wants to have the same kind of amount following as, as, as Prime Minister Netanyahu does. How much do you think long-term he's thinking, well, actually, if it goes to fifth, sixth, or elections down in five, 10 years, 
I don't want to be perceived by my supporters as the person that ousted BB and went with those kind of those centre left wing parties. I think I think that's exactly the deal. I think that uh, Bennett might really want to replace Netanyahu, but he understands the right wing psyche. And when you look at the numbers, by the way, the right wing psyche is still with Netanyahu. And especially Bennett's base, which is, you know, um, national religious, uh, the settlers a bit more right wing, um, they will not necessarily forgive Bennett ever for joint for, you know, ousting a right wing government um, and joining a government that is very uncoherent, that has a lot of left wing presence inside it. And also, you know, uh, Yair Lapid, Merav Michaeli, the leaders of labor, and Yashati, they have demands for the policy of the next government that Bennett will find it very difficult to agree with. They want to halt, uh, you know, they, they will want to, dem um, to restrict settlement construction. That is something that Bennett will find it hard to live with. Um, and so if he wants to look forward and he, no he, he believes, and I, I think he's right, the, the right wing will never forgive him if he contributes to, um, to forming an alternative government that will oust the right-wing government. That being said, I do want to say, I, Bennett is a PR wizard genius, and he has geniusly succeeded to, you know, brand himself in this election as the kingmaker and the one that will make the difference. But the truth is, is just exactly as Yaakov explained, if Netanyahu doesn't have 61, he's not really a kingmaker. Um, and he doesn't really have any cards. And if he's not a kingmaker and he has to make the decision, uh, will he become, I don't think a rotation agreement will put him in the premiership, for, premiership first. I don't think that's, when the numbers are, the, the, you know, the gap between Yair Lapid and him is so big, Yair Lapid is almost double his strength. Um, so I really think that uh, for the long term, and that's the only thing he's thinking about, he it wouldn't be wise for him to join an alternative center right left government. Some of the polls um, the last couple of weeks have had this kind of crazy scenario for Bibi to get 61, he will need Bennett, Yamina, 10, maybe 11, maybe less, and also four seats from, from Mansour Abbas, this kind of breakaway um, party of, of the Arab list. Um, but there was a poll earlier this week which found from Arab voters that 46% would support their parties joining any government that promoted the interests of the Arab public. And that figure was actually 56% for RAM. So, I mean, how feasible do you think it is that RAM, if they do kind of pass the threshold, would recommend BB? Um, um, a, I don't think they'll recommend BB. I don't think BB will, wa will want their recommendation. Um, first of all, I think that BB, as we speak, the Likud is actively trying to weaken Ram um, and to take away their votes and to bring those voters who want to have cooperation with his government to bring them to vote for the Likud. And Netanyahu has at least doubled his strength in the Arab uh, society during this election. Um, so, but I don't think that Netanyahu will want to establish a government based on Mansour Abbas. I think on the contrary, I think there are higher chances that Mansour Abbas will have a significant discussion with Yair Lapid on cooperation than he will have with Netanyahu. It, it will not necessarily lead anywhere, but the discussion will be more sincere with Yair Lapid. That being said, Mansour Abbas can be strategically important for Netanyahu for specific votes. And that's where their, uh, I believe their relationship could, I don't think that Netanyahu will form a government on the Arab MK's voters. But I do think that, for instance, if you will attempt to make any move, any legislative move to stop the trial, to halt the trial, then I think he will be able to find a partner with Mansour Abbas and might be, might agree to support or to, you know, be absent in exchange for um, something, for, in exchange for some of his uh, um, society's needs. Uh, maybe if I could just add here, uh, the, the, one of the scenarios with Mansour Abbas's Ram is that, let's say Netanyahu gets to 60, right? And uh, requires, right, in the Israeli coalition system, you require a majority, you have to pass your coalition with the majority. So let's say he gets even to 59, but he doesn't have the 61. If, he's, if, he's, if he is able to somehow pay off Mansour Abbas, 
and get him to vote in favor of passing the coalition through the Knesset and affirming uh, and establishing the government, then that's something that, that could potentially happen. I think, you know, it, like I agree with Tal that it's very difficult to, to see that happening, that Netanyahu would swear in a government on the back of, of Arab, uh, uh, I don't want to say necessarily, they're not extremists, but, but Arabs were not Zionists, that's for sure. Um, but you're starting to see a change in the narrative. And, you know, in Israel, when, when, when the narrative starts to change and people start to already come up with excuses, then you know that something might be being, you know, in, in, the, in the works. And one example is Itamar Ben-Gvir, who is the Kahanist member of uh, uh, Betzal Smotrich's Religious Zionist Party, said at a conference this week that if um, Mansour Abbas, I forget the exact quote, Tal, maybe help me, but if, if Mansour Abbas were to suddenly say that he's against murdering Jewish babies or something like that, um, then I, I, I wouldn't rule out necessarily having him support from the outside the establishment of the government, something along those lines. So you're already seeing the most far right flank of a possible Netanyahu right wing coalition start to create, the, you know, to lay the groundwork for a possible Mansour Abbas uh, support. So that, that, that's just one part of it. The second part, I think, which is important to keep in mind and really is, in my opinion, is very positive, is that we are seeing a huge um, sea change in Israeli-Jewish-Arab relations, right? The Arabs of Israel, who those who, two million Arabs are, are citizens of, of Israel, about 20% of our population. And uh, for, for decades, they, they voted based on Arab nationalism, Palestinian affairs, uh, things of that sort. Uh, finally, we're seeing the, uh, the, the that they're starting to really understand that they have to work within the system. We saw that, by the way, after 20-something years of them not recommending a candidate to form a coalition, they did that after, was it round one or round two of the elections? I can't remember right now, but when they recommended Benny Gantz for blue and white to form the coalition, which was big, it was a big step for them. Uh, they, they know that they have a major crime issue. They know that they have poor infrastructure. They have problems with their education system. They want, there's growing talk of they need to be part of, of a government and not work always against a government. So this has created this groundwork, and that's why you have Netanyahu who likes to call himself Abu Yair, right, the father of Yair, uh, which he claims some of the Arabs who he meets call, refer to him fondly, is uh, he's after the Arab vote, and th there are some predictions that he might be able to get one or two seats uh, worth of votes from them. You know, we'll wait to see. But, but, uh, but I, don't, you know, so I don't know if Mansour Abbas necessarily joins a coalition, and, and I, I, I have much more difficulty seeing it on the left, on the right side, sorry, but on the left, or the center left, I think we could see a lot more cooperation, like Tal said, of, of Arabs working together with the Lapid or, or whoever might be running that type of bloc. Do, do you think on the kind of the alternative government, um, Lapid would or would rely on the joint list as like a kind of blocking support if he had to? Or because obviously Benny Gantz didn't and he, he kind of refused that option. Do you think Lapid would be more welcoming to that? Lapid has already, he, 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 yeah. he's actually went on the record this time and he's okay. actually said that he'd like to cooperate with, uh, with the Arab MKs. By the way, uh, Ayman Oda, the head of the joint list himself, defined that statement as a historic statement from a, from, from a candidate uh, these days. So I, I do want to say that I, th I totally agree with uh, Yaakov. I think that maybe the best thing, the only good thing about these um, ongoing election campaigns is this transformation that we're seeing with uh, um, Arab politicians and Arab MKs becoming real political partners, um, real political players, and not only you know representatives of the Palestinians in Ramallah, but really a part of the discourse. Um, and I do think that the credit, partially, mostly, has to go to the joint list. Um, the fact yeah. that um, in the two previous elections the joint list was so strong. Um, and they were the one who I think started, you know, the historic change because they were the ones who came out and recommended Benny Gantz. And then Netanyahu, of course, joined recently in this new approach to the Arab society. He's also taking this another step that is also very significant, but we're basically seeing a gradual transformation that is bringing, for the first time since I remember, the Arab politicians to be real political and just simple political players. And it's not about Ramallah and it's not about the peace process. And of course, every time something comes that has to do with the Ramallah and the peace process, it kind of ruins this, uh, it kind of ruins this process.
But at large, this is a very, very positive process that means that at the end of the day, they will be represented, I hope, better in the Knesset and uh, better in the government and be able to get real achievements out of this. One thing just to keep in mind to your question, Sam, is that uh, while Lapid might be willing to work with the joint list, and he said he would, it, the constellation of that coalition that he would want to build, though, would, would be the determining factor, right? If Bennett's part of that coalition, there's no Arab partner, right? Lieberman, I wonder. I mean, I, you know, Tal, what do you think? I don't, I don't know that Lieber, I think Lieberman might, might be ready to sit with Merits. I don't think he's ready to sit with the joint yeah, list. Right, yeah. So, right. so again, so it would, it's, it's a nice idea, but in, in, in real in reality, it, we're not yet there. But by the way, I mean, you know, it, it, when we think about Arabs in Israel, right, and the change that is taking place, where we really need to get to is a point of where we don't need a joint list. We have parties that have Arab members in their party. There's no reason, you know, Bibi spoke about uh, uh, installing an Arab member in Likud. I think he was put in, what, spot 38, 9, 40, I don't know. Not not looking totally realistic. But there, there's no reason they can't be a realistic Arab on the Likud list or in labor, or in, or in Yamina, or in any of these parties, right? You get Israel Baitain who has a Druze member who's in a realistic spot. But we, we, should see, we should see more of that. We should encourage more of that. that that's for Israel's benefit, ultimately. Absolutely. Actually, I mean, I think Moretz have, Moretz have three, I think, on their top 10. Um, yeah, they have two, two out of their top five. Yeah. But by the way, interesting enough, Meretz is not doing very well with the Arab voters because uh, it also has to do who, what's the process of bringing the Arab voices? Do the Jews pick the Arabs that they want to have in their parties or are there local leaders that, you know, rise inside the system? Um, I do agree with Yaakov that I think the real revolution will be when we see Arab representatives in Zionist parties First and foremost, by the way, um, the Labour Party and Yeshatid. Labour Party historically had a very large portion of Arab supporters, and they kind of left that uh, they kind of left that uh, flag this time. Even though they do have an Arab representative, but she's very non-conformistic, and I do not believe she necessarily brings such a big bulk of uh, Arab supporters. Yeah married to a Jew, and she's even turned off some voters as well, so, yeah. You know, fascinating. So, obviously, we've got, I think, five days to, to the election, um, going into the last weekend. Which party leader do you think will be the happiest, and which kind of party do you think will be the most worried come <laughs> Monday and Tuesday? I think they're all worried right now, right? They're all worried at the moment. Um, Netanyahu is always the most worried, and that's why he always never loses. So that's also something to add. And, 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 but it's also, it's, it's, you know, that's true also about Netanyahu, but also let's not forget Netanyahu has the most to lose right now, right? For Netanyahu, this very much is, do I stay in power? Or do I sit in, do I sit just on the, not the bench of the, uh, the defendant's bench in the Jerusalem District Court, right? So th th these are two very, you know, different scenarios that one is very much needed to prevent the other. Um, so really, he really has this motivation. And by the way, I mean, you know, you say what you want about Netanyahu, I, I happen to be very critical, but uh, you watch a man who's in his early 70s, who crisscrosses this country, who doesn't stop for a second, is, is an amazing, incredible campaigner. Um, he'll be the most happy if he's able to get a 61 coalition, right? Uh, the, the, so I think that he really has the potential to be the happiest of all, right? The the Bennett would be the happiest if he really finds himself in that position that we spoke about earlier of being the kingmaker, of that all, all everything is up to him. It's whatever he decides, he's the one who holds the keys to the next government. That will make him the happiest because then he can get as much as he wants out of any potential uh, leader of a coalition. Um, and uh, the person who has the, the, I think probably will, might end up being the saddest could end up being Benny Gantz, right? Who, uh, if he does not cross the threshold, this will be a very tragic uh, end to a uh, um, to a to a short-lived political career that is hard to to again imagine how he went from so high to so low in such a short amount of time. I'll tell you who will be the saddest person. It'll be the political reporters because the minute they get the results, they will see if they have another election underway. <laughs> Also true. I was going to ask you who, um, who do you think has run the best campaign, but perhaps 
I'll ask you instead, what have you made of Lad Pitt's campaign? Um, have you been surprised by, obviously he was very quiet and then this week he's kind of come out of the shadows a bit, but he's still refusing to, or, you know, sitting down with, with BB. I mean, what do you make of, of his campaign and do you think he could do anything differently to kind of break his 20 kind of seat ceiling? Well, A, it's the same answer. I think that basically Lapid's campaign has been the best campaign so far. It's uh, got, It's been under a lot of criticism because Lapid hasn't been giving interviews and he's been very distant and uh, um, he hasn't been like coming out straightforwardly saying, I want to replace Netanyahu, but his slogan or his motto is more, I, first, I want to replace Netanyahu, but it doesn't have to be me. Um, and I think that Lapid, it was a brilliant campaign, A, because I think that Lapid understood or realized that one of his weaknesses is him himself, that his party is stronger, but his personality is a weakness. And you need, to, I mean, it's unexpected for a politician to put his ego in, to, you know, to hide himself. It's really unnatural for a pol politician to hide himself, but it worked. Um, at the end of the day, he is the front runner. Now, will it lead him to form a government? I don't think so. I think the um, everything that Yaakov said earlier, the fact that we have such a, um, a non-homogenic uh, anti-Netanyahu bloc, um, and the fact that Lapid himself um, is considered I per perhaps one of the less popular people in Israel, I don't think that will necessarily translate into him becoming prime minister, but I do think that his campaign is brilliant. Another person who is, I believe, I think is uh, doing a, a brilliant campaign is Merav Michaeli and the Labour Party. Merav Michaeli is the only women leader uh, in, in these elections, and she's really emphasizing um, the women agenda. Um, she's been, and uh, unfortunately, the news is packed with um, horrible cases of uh, vi domestic violence, uh, which also put a lot of flashlight, put a flashlight on that agenda. And she's basically succeeded to awaken the Labour Party after almost everyone already put it to death. So I really, these two campaigns are the best campaigns, in my opinion. And I don't think it'll help Merab Michaeli reach the government either, but um, it's a good campaign. Fascinating, great, thank you. I wonder if, um, obviously we can talk all day about kind of who might get what amount of seats and, and what government might be able to form, but um, if we kind of speculate a bit, kind of looking ahead and thinking kind of what happens if a full right-wing government happens, um, kind of what does that mean for Israel in terms of society and policies? I mean, Lapid and I think Horowitz have, have used like the scare tactics of a potential BB, Litzman, um, Dairy being the government to try and win votes. Um, if it turns out that 61 seat government does happen, do you think that government will kind of have public legitimacy in Israel, given kind of the state of how, how it's so divided with BB and how half population don't want him to be a, a prime minister under indictment? Do you think if that was the case and, and he formed a 61 seat government, a full on right wing government, do you think it, it would? have full-on public legitimacy or could we see something that's happening maybe in, in, in America happen in Israel where lots of people come to the streets and, and just refuse to, to, to believe that that's their government? Uh, I think it'll have legitimacy because it'll be have been elected, right? The, the, the problem will come when asking how does a government like that function, mm -hmm. right? When you have a government of 61 where um, you're, you're dependent on people like Itamar Ben-Gvir, for example, it will make it difficult for Netanyahu to potentially rule. On the other hand, there I have been instances, he did have a 61 government back after the 2015 election, and it, and it lasted for, for more than, I think, over a year until uh, uh, Lieberman then jo jo joined the coalition and became defense minister. So it, it, does, um, it does have a precedent. It could exist, it could last, and as long as Netanyahu does get the immunity bill, which is something that he still doesn't necessarily deny that he wouldn't try to pursue in a 61-member coalition, it's questionable if Yamina, if Bennett was part of that, if he would uh, give hand to passing such a bill, but let's say yes, um, that would potentially even create stability for Israel, right? You wouldn't have this threat of the trial bringing down the sitting prime minister. You wouldn't have the standoff anymore between uh, the Israel's political leader and the judicial system, the courts, the attorney general, the police, which right now creates a lot of division and polarization in Israeli society. So that would maybe even tone down a bit. 
Um, and maybe there's even a benefit to it. I don't know. I think on the other hand, a government of that sort would be extremely right-wing, extremely religious, and extremely divisive. Um, I think it, it would, it, Israel prides itself in being a liberal democracy. I'm not sure that a government like that would be able to hold up to being a liberal democracy or liberal, de liberal democratic government. Uh, forget about the fact that all religion and state issues would be outsourced to the most extreme of ultra-Orthodox uh, parties and of the sector and society. Israel today right, is, is, is basically, the way I, I think of it right now, we're off our axes. We're, we're, we're imbalanced as a country and as a society because of ongoing elections, because of the fact that their Netanyahu over 12 years has consistently and constantly, serially conceded everything to his Haredi coalition partners, we have to restore balance and stability to this country. A government like that would not be able to do that, would clash with the United States under Biden, would clash with Europe, um, has the potential to be a very uh, roller coaster ride. Uh, for a few years, if it lasts that long. Um, obviously, yeah, like, you know, that kind of government will, will, will create many problems. I wonder if, thinking of if Lapid was the former government, um, you know, how do you think Lapid's government kind of could change relations maybe with, with like, its immediate neighbours like Jordan and the Palestinians? Do you think, a, obviously, there could be a massive change from BB. Do you reckon that will result in a massive kind of change with the Palestinians and Jordanian policy? Or do you think Lapid will kind of toe the line a bit and, and kind of continue what kind of BB's more centrist, more kind of risk-averse policy has been over the last kind of decade? Well, hey, I think um, Lapid is centrist at large. And even if he's going, he's been going a bit left in the past few months, it's mostly for electoral reasons uh, because he want he wants to you know to get the base behind him. Um, I don't necessarily. I think that the main difference that Lapid might have, or if Lapid becomes prime minister, the main difference. I don't think it'll be in foreign policy. I think it'll be an in internal in domestic policy, and it'll be more about how decision making and how this country is run. Uh, the um, any other do, uh, government, by the way, not necessarily Lapid. I think that one of the things that have is happening under Netanyahu, because not necessarily because it's Netanyahu, but because the you know the Likud has been ruling Israel for over um, 12 years, is that um, the public service, um, and we we discovered this harshly dur during COVID-19, public service is um, slowly slowly weakened. Um, and I think that the main change would be a domestic one. Regarding the Palestinians, listen, I think that Lapid would totally adopt, uh, will totally adopt the Abraham Accords. And we will also totally adopt the fact that it might be, that it's better or wiser to have an outside inside approach to the conflict and not an inside outside approach just because on the Palestinian side, nothing is going to change, or at least we don't know yet with the elections, but not dramatically. Mahmoud Abbas is still Mahmoud Abbas. I don't think that necessarily when Lapid comes there, he'll become a partner. That being said, I think that Lapid will be if, and I, I'm skeptical, but if he were to come prime minister, he would be much more cooperative with the Americans, with the Europeans on trying to, re, uh, to, to, launch, to relaunch negotiations. I believe that if Lapid, um, that doesn't mean the negotiations would lead anywhere. But I do think that he would be more enthusiastic about launching negotiations, even just to show that he's different from Netanyahu and that, he, that things are changing. Um, thank you. Um, just before I ask um, my question, just let the audience know that if they want to ask a question, just write something in the Q&A function or raise your hand and I will bring you into the, uh, the discussion. Um, just to quickly again on, um, obviously you mentioned the Abraham Accords and obviously this week BB's been in the news a lot about kind of, his kind of courting of, of the United States Arab Emirates and trying to get maybe a foreign policy wing. How much think that's affected maybe BB in the polls or do you think, if anything, or do you think he'll just brush it off and um, it won't affect him at all when next week we'll go and, and it'll just be forgotten? Well, uh, I, the, um, I don't think that people are turned off by Netanyahu not getting the photo op necessarily, right? I don't think that that's causing him damage. I don't think that the 
tweet that came out yesterday from Anwar Gargash, who was the uh, former uh, Minister of Foreign Affairs for uh, in the UAE, um, it, where he said that it, the UAE will not involve itself in electioneering in Israel and therefore does not doesn't want to host Netanyahu before elections. I don't think that that necessarily causes him damage either, right? I think a photo, had he gone there, had he met with MBZ and Mohammed bin Zayed, the leader of the Crown Prince of Abu Dhabi, that would have given him more points. Right? Netanyahu very much wanted these elections to be about two of his primary successes. One is the vaccination campaign, which has been heralded by the world and, and, and celebrated. And number two is the peace that he's brought to the Middle East and the normalization of relations. Right? So the vaccinations, he has pounded away at that constantly, every single day, all day, all night. He wanted that trip. It didn't work out for a variety of reasons. But uh, but I don't think that that's necessarily causing him damage. It could have maybe gotten him more votes, right? Uh, also keep in mind, you know, what's it, interesting also is how Biden has stayed very, very quiet about anything Israel-related, right? This was not, I think that the U.S. administration understood that this is not the time for comments about Palestinian renewal of negotiations or, you know, any big talk about Iran. The moment that you... Um, it, it had Biden presented a peace plan or spoken about 67 lines or something along, that would have actually helped Netanyahu, right? Uh, because while some of us might say, no, it should weaken him because you'll see there's a clash that's coming, it actually, he would have said, listen, you need me to protect you from this hostile administration, right? So to every, there's always the flip side and it tends to work to his benefit. And and I think that they've, American the Americans have played it smart also by staying quiet throughout this period. Fascinating. Um, again, like thinking of if there's like a, a Lapid government, um, how do you think that, that affects perceptions in the Gulf? Because obviously Netanyahu's kind of driven this idea that, um, you know, Gulf relations have kind of grown because he's been very kind of anti-Iran in the US. You know, how do you think the Gulf look at a Lapid government vis-a-vis -vis Israel's relations with the US? Do you think it changes their perception at all? Or do you think um, Lapid can uh, kind of be as strong in Washington as Bibi has been? I think that a uh, diplomacy is usually more about interests and less about personality. It's true that Netanyahu is trying, you know, to own the norm normalization process, but fact is that it started years ago, decades ago, under other prime ministers. It's true that under Netanyahu, the interests vis-a-vis -vis Iran converged and created this alliance. Um, Israel is still going to be against Iran, um, not, not necessarily at the same extent, but Iran and uh, um, Israel and the Emirates will stay, as long as there's no big havoc in the Middle East, which can happen every day, as we know, as long as things stay the same, Israel will stay on the same side. And I want to say that from what I understand, besides, you know, the strategic uh, intelligence, Iran interest, a big thing here is money. It's about economic investments. And economic investments, even though, you know, Netanyahu tries to put the whole Israeli economy on his, you know, on his forehead, it's not about Netanyahu. It's about the Israeli market, and it's about the Israeli genius, and it's about the Israeli know-how. And I do not think that that will change because there's a different prime minister. Netanyahu's campaign will definitely want us to also believe the same thing with the vaccinations. Netanyahu likes to present um, his own personal um, interference as the reason there is the, uh, the vaccination uh, um, process is such a success. I agree. The fact that he was so intent on it and so um, he really did make it a, a main goal and he did achieve it and he does deserve the credit. But when he says that he's the only one that can continue to bring the vaccinations to Israel, that's not a true statement. Um, this is about money, this is about business deals, um, and this is about Israel's relations and Israel's health system and another other factor. So I don't think that, um, I don't think normalization uh, will suffer a blow if Netanyahu is replaced. If, if I could also just add to what Tao was saying, you know, one, one of the arguments that you'll oftentimes hear from the pro BB camp is that there's no alternative. No one can do what he does. No one can get the vaccines, no one curbs, no one can battle Iran. Um, just that, you know, before we even question the validity of that statement, 
the, 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 the idea that a country of almost 10 million people with the strongest military in the Middle East and beyond, with purported nuclear capabilities, right, with, with a fleet of submarines with second strike capabilities, right, with, with the largest squadrons of F-35 joint strike fighter, stealth fifth generation fighter jets, anywhere outside of America, is dependent for its survival on a single individual is so preposterous, so, so insane and ludicrous that, that, that it just, it's, it's more, I, I find when people say this, that I just don't under, like, are we living in the same reality at times? Because of course he has extreme qualities. I completely agree with Paul that Netanyahu did a fantastic job getting the vaccines without a doubt, deserves a tremendous amount of credit. We heard the interview with the CEO of Pfizer, who even said your prime minister was obsessive, but his questions and his obsession is what made me understand that I can trust him and he'll get the job done and vaccinating quickly and be able to use Israel as this world laboratory to see what happens with the rollout of Pfizer vaccines. But is, is that, does that mean no one else can do it? I mean, does that mean that we have, we don't, we don't have institutions, we don't have a health system, we don't have a military, we don't have a court or a prosecution or a police force or checks and balances? Of course we do, right? As any democracy should have. God forbid we should be dependent on one person. So, so this whole idea is just so, so strange, but it's, it's become almost like a religion, right? This, 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 we, we, you know, there's, the world likes to talk about pol identity politics. So there's another, you know, you could actually talk about uh, policy politics, where you argue about policy. In Israel, it's politics of personalities. That, that's what it's all become. And, and that's what this always is, is yes, BB, no BB. But we have to rise above this idiotic idea of, uh, of, of this no alternative. Fascinating. Um, perhaps we can divert back to kind of domestic politics and, and with the election back in mind. Um, I'd love to kind of hear your views about kind of what's the kind of the feeling in Israel with the ultra-Orthodox community. Um, it's come under a lot of kind of pressure in the last six months to a year with COVID and flaunting of the rules. Um, I think a couple of polls last week had um, had both parties maybe polling at like 12, 11, 13, which is actually very low for, for them historically. I'm not, but what's the sentiment in Israel with, with Orthodox parties? And do you think, um, you know, do you think this is a kind of a, a change now for the younger generation to look outside of their historical parties in the Knesset and go elsewhere? Um, yeah, just what's, what's your kind of feeling? Well, um... You know, the, first of all, the ultra-Orthodox parties, you know, they always poll, they've been polling a bit, yeah, lower than their actual power. They have 15 seats or 16 seats and they're polling at 13 or 14. I A, want to say, let's wait for the final results. It really depends on turnout and the ultra-Orthodox uh, parties have an advantage uh, on voter turnout. So I A, don't think that they will lose power. Um, B, if they do lose power, it might be to Bezalel Smotrich. We do know that there's been some kind of drift of votes to Smotrich and to Netanyahu, meaning it'll all stay in the same block anyway. So I don't think that anything, even though this was a very, very dramatic year for the ultra-Orthodox community itself, I don't think that it will have any impact on the vote, on voter turnout or on voter distribution. On the other hand, you have like, um, the liberal camp, the secular camp, um, who maybe half a year ago or three months ago or time and again, every time and again, every time there's this COVID-19 scandal that has to do with the ultra-Orthodox uh, um, breaking rules or not abiding by the rules, then you see a spike in the sentiment against uh, the ultra-Orthodox. But so far, you haven't seen this in the polls of Viktor Lieberman, who has went on a very straightforward uh, campaign. I'm. He's the only one who's saying out loud, "Loud, I want a government. I'm never going to uh, join a government with the Haredi parties." He's not really succeeding. He hasn't really burst any bubble or any uh, uh, broke any glass ceiling yet. Maybe it'll change in the polls. But at least now it seems um, that here I'm also going to give Netanyahu some political credit. Netanyahu opened up a, the vaccination uh, operation. Stopped just on like concluded just on time. The market, um, the, the restaurants, the stores, everything is open just on time. And I think that people have a very short memory and they do not necessarily remember uh, the rage and then the anger that they had towards the government on any issue, 
during the past year. And inside that, I don't think that the ultra-Orthodox issue uh, will be such a, is such a, a drive anymore. Okay, great. I, I have one question here. Um, Ben's asking if we can talk more about the campaigns of the parties of the centre-left. Tao said that Labour had been running a good campaign, but it would be good to know why it has worked and where their support is coming from. Is it women voters only? Um, are there any new voters? Um, and is, is there any reshuffling of the votes in the kind of centre-left camp? Um, so there haven't been any, uh, there hasn't been any real, well, also, listen, the question is, you ask if there's been any movement from right to left. The traditional divide of right to left does not exist today in Israeli politics. Today we have a different divide, yes BB or no BB, which could also be divided as maybe a religious, ultra-Orthodox conservative bloc versus everything else, um, which I don't know that has, you know, one headline. Um, there hasn't been any drift, uh, which is amazing, given the fact that we have been after a year of COVID and nothing has changed uh, in the map. Regarding uh, the Labour Party, well, A, remember, Labour Party does have some kind of traditional base. Um, in just six years ago, in, 2020, in 2015, the Zionist Union got 24 seats. So some of these votes last election voted maybe for blue and white, but they're, now they're coming home to Labour Party. Uh, the women vote, yes. Uh, we do know that she has favorite, Micheli is favorable amongst women, not only left-wing women, by the way. Uh, we do see an interest in, I don't know if this will actually be translated to voting, but we do see an interest by religious women and even uh, ultra-Orthodox women who are interested in Micheli. Um, she does represent, uh, you know, um, a gender agenda. Um, and, but that being said, one should say, Michaeli has also lost some of her support. Traditional labor support that did not like, that does not like her list, which is very, very left-wing relatively to previous lists, um, they've moved to Benny Gantz. So it's not clear that necessarily it's true. And the question is right, that she really has a base that we know that we can count on because some of the base is left and it could be, you know, undecided between labor and merit. And the more hawkish old school labor party voters have also left to many guns because her list is a bit too far-fetched for them. Um, Yala Pid said, I think he said this morning that he reckons there's 10 or 12 undecided votes, undecided seats out there. Um, so if, if there's no kind of left to right movement, are they all centrist voters that kind of either Lapid, maybe Saar, maybe Bennett? Is it just between those three that are going for these, these seats? I think it's probably you're looking at a mix of people who are torn between Lapid, Giron Saar, Labour, Bennett, right? They, they, you know, they might like Bennett's policies, but they're afraid that Bennett would sit with Netanyahu. On the other hand, they know that Saar won't sit with Netanyahu, but they think he's not charismatic. They like Yair Lapid and the fact that he's center, but they can't envision him being a prime minister. Um, it, it, everybody has their pros and their cons, and these are people who are still battling it out internally with who to vote for. I think that the last election, the last, the first three of the, this round of four, what you had, which made things a little simpler, was a very one clear contender against Netanyahu. So a lot of the anti-BB vote could just go straight into that pool called blue and white. Today, it's much more splintered, which means the voting will be across the spectrum. Uh, and, and Bennett, by the way, has gambled on this, right? Bennett's whole thing of not saying that he won't sit with Netanyahu, has been on the one hand, but, say, but on the other hand, criticizing Netanyahu in unprecedented terms for him at least, right? Has been all, been all about getting votes from the anti-Netanyahu voters, but not losing votes from the pro-Netanyahu voters that he also has. He's trying to you know, hold both ends of the stick at the same time without dropping it, um, which is not proving to be that easy and, and might end up not working. Uh, Gidon Saar, on the other hand, has gone anti-Bibi, but it's not really paying out that well for him either. So everybody tried a different strategy, but it's, it's all over the place, right? And I think we won't really know where those 10 seats that are still up for grabs will end up until the final, uh, the final day of voting. 
That's I think. Okay, um, I'll just, my last question is to put you both on the spot, um, to give a prediction. Do you think it's, it's going to be a decisive result or do you think a fifth election um, is a very high possibility? I'll let Tal go first. <laughs> I'm going to say I hope there's a decisive result, but I think that it's going, they're going to be fifth elections. I, I, I'm, I'm concerned myself. I definitely hope there will be a decisive vote. I think that uh, I probably speak for Tal when saying that we are uh, fed up with all these elections, fed up from a journalism, journalistic perspective, but also it's not, it's terrible for the country. It really is. You know, the story of Israel can't be this mudslinging, right? I mean, it was just, I'm writing something for, for tomorrow's paper. You had Benny Gantz this week called Netanyahu a piece of crap. You had Lieberman say that we need to take the, the ultra-Orthodox Netanyahu on a, on a wheelbarrow to a garbage dump. You had the ultra-Orthodox party make a video comparing reformed Jews to dogs. And you had Netanyahu, who had this line when asked about 6,000 people who died from COVID, say, paka paka shasha shasha, which is basically some sort of derogatory sexist re remark about the number two woman on uh, the New Hope Party. The fact that this has become the norm of Israel, we're living in a cesspool of sewage, of political sewage. We have to get ourselves out of this. And for that, we need, we need an end to this ongoing election cycle. So I, I sincerely pray and hope that this will come to an end, but I'm highly skeptical that it will because of the fact that Netanyahu will do everything he can to stay in power, um, even if he doesn't have that 61 coalition and, and who knows what else he might try to do? I, I would like to add, I agree with everything that Yaakov said. Uh, I also think that um, the, the Israeli public, in a way, has been taken hostage by its politicians. Um, because, and it's not necessarily, I mean, Netanyahu, of course, is the main hero of this story. But it's not only Netanyahu. It's many, many other politicians who have, uh, um, in, who have you know, e huge egos and huge demands and huge expectations and which are more important than the country. Uh, because when you hear, even now, when people say, talk about fifth election, even before the fourth election has even been concluded, it's unbelievable. It means that everyone who is now being elected is already admitting, listen, we might not be able to fulfill the reason you're electing, the main goal you're electing us for, which is unbelievable. And I do hope um, that at the end of the day, we will be able to step out of this crisis because it's really, you know, in the second election, someone told me, you know, this could go on forever. And I didn't believe it. But now I do know that this could definitely go on forever. Uh, and yeah, hopefully, the mostly the journalists want it to be over by now. I think an average person can kind of detach himself, perhaps, from these ongoing election cycles. But journalists have to, like, live it inside it. So it's quite frust frustrating. Well, uh, I'll leave on that, and, and I hope for both your sakes and for everyone else in this world, every journalist, that you know, it does end and, and you do get to report on other more interesting things. Um, Yakov and Tao, thank you so much for joining us on your busy, busy day. Yeah. And um, yeah, I hope next week, uh, yeah, we, we get to the end of it. But thank you very much, everyone else, for joining, and um, I look forward to the next one. Thank you very much. Thank you. Bye.